In this episode of The Ownership Economy, we talk with Charlie Fisher, a researcher and entrepreneur that is working to build regenerative communities through an interesting new model based on the concept of proof of presence. Charlie walks us through the history of community land trusts and how this legal and economic structure is being reimagined through shared ownership and governance. The discussion then turns practical with an overview of a recent case study on a community project in Portugal. In the discussion, we explore how to optimize for active versus passive stakeholders and shareholders when creating local ecosystems. We hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Thanks for joining us today, Charlie. Nice to see you. So we like to start these things off just by getting to know you a bit outside of your primary project. So can you tell us your story? Start wherever you like. Sure. Okay. Having listened to a few of these and being a bit of a fan of the podcast, I'll start quite early with mine. So I'm a son of an urban designer and a printer both fairly entrepreneurial types, very community-minded in terms of the local places that they've been operating, working for local authorities and uh, things like that. So heavily influenced by that, going on to study architecture and specializing in housing within development and emergency contexts. Through that, I worked heavily with a guy called Nabil Hamdi, um, whose key contribution was, was a book called Small Change about the tiny things that you can do in place. You don't have to do big infrastructure projects, but where can you have the the most effect by uh, meddling at a very small scale within local markets and things like that? Bus stops is usually his example, uh, setting up markets in bus stops in different places and then monitoring local credit systems that come up as a result. And then working with with a few friends uh, to set up a, a cooperative called Transition by Design. And we're an architecture cooperative based here in Oxford with people across a number of cities. And we focus on housing and homelessness almost entirely. 50% of our work is passive house, very low carbon architecture, and 50% is research. And my specialism started to develop as citizen-led developments all across England, but a real focus on Oxford and Oxfordshire. So it's um, very local, very place-based. And then I went on to do a PhD in the marketization of affordable housing. So I'm uh, like a very research-based practice where I now advise and research institutions around the, the, mostly the UK still. I'm very English focused. Okay, so the transition by design group, you could almost say is a foil to the outside. I live in Barcelona. When you walk by some of the garages, the underground garages that are here, parking garages, right? Adjacent to them are just, you know, weirdly placed spikes, bumps, balls, you know, things that are like, essentially anti-homeless architecture, but if you don't know what you're looking at, you don't really know what it is, right? So it's like uh, anti-squatter. So transition by design sounds like it's the complete foil to that. If you had a two by two, like it's actually just, how do we not do that? How do we actually design local, place-based, cheap housing for all? Is that about right? It's a big part of it. And, and also making creative design available to all, which often there's a big gap there. What we say is that we're, we're involved in the transition to a convivial and low-carbon economy. So we're really trying to create places that are beautiful to be in, but also a joy to participate in. And the processes are often very dull in creating local planning policy or the, the routes to getting buildings or taking over land. We try and make it a bit more fun along that way through lots of participatory practice. All right. So it sounds like growing up in the house that you did, this ended up becoming something that you just uh, were exposed to at an early age, urban design and what have you. Um, did, were your parents and you know maybe your 
your early peers as you were growing up, were they also interested in the space of you know, commons, social and public goods? Or is this something that you became interested in later? Yeah, definitely. And continue to be. So conversation between me and my mother, uh, always fantastic because she's really getting her hands dirty within Leeds, the place that I grew up in, within a local authority context. And she's doing all sorts of regenerative projects uh, now that uh, like regenerative eco villages in the north of England. So I take a lot of inspiration from her on a continual basis. Charlie, just side note, you were single-handedly, uh, I would say you're single-handedly reviving my faith in the uh, the British Isles <laughs> over the last couple of weeks. I got to tell you, it's yeah. uh, you watch with morbid curiosity what's going on over there. And uh, it's great to hear that there are some people thinking about recommoning public goods, you know, regenerative projects. That's fantastic. That's just, you know, my I had to say this personally just because everything that's going on out there now when we're recording this is the week of the 19th, uh, Wednesday, October 19th. Yeah, maybe let's stick, stick clear of that. well this is a podcast partly about political economy so you know we sometimes we butt up against it but uh cool so then you know i've been reading about your background a bit you know unlike a lot of folks who've been trying to who've been in this space you at least have been in it long enough to have made some mistakes and learn from them so before we dig into your current projects i'd love to know these alternative urban visions projects you've been trying to bring to the fore what has worked and what hasn't worked so far and what have you learned so some of the early work I did was around a project called WikiHouse. So as I was coming out of university 11 years ago, 12 years ago, I was really focused on this, this project, which was very like a tech project. It was open sourcing housing design through a traditional, they were creating traditional carpentry joints, traditional ribs on buildings, looking to parametricize it so that you could replicate it very effectively. So you like stretch the buildings and it would would replicate these joints and and then be reproducible by being able to print out your buildings effectively using a CNC router. And it was very interesting for me at the time, seeing the model where you'd have version numbers going from uh, up to version one of the WikiHouse, then 1.2, 2, 3, 4, seeing version two come out, and this being improved through international efforts. A big jump came through the New Zealand earthquake, and you started to see designs come forwards for earthquake-proof WikiHouses through being in the network. And so I often think back now that I'm getting more involved in this Web3 space of thinking about that project and its continuation. So that was an early starting point um, for me working on that project. And then, yeah, I've been involved in what I think is lots of very useful failures and learned a huge amount of trying to take on in a place like Oxford, where a lot of the land here is institutionally owned. It's a small place. It's very bounded. It's very expensive to live here, about 50% of the housing is rented, big student population, very transient. So getting change in this place, we've often thought of it as being the belly of the beast. If we can solve it in a place like Oxford, which outside of London is one of the most expensive housing markets in the country and one of the most expensive in, in Europe, we should be able to replicate this anywhere. And so we've done large scale alternative visions where we've actually made bids and build partnerships with big developers, big institutions, the local authorities, in order to show an alternative vision of what could be. But unfortunately, the uh, the economics are against us a lot of the time in building that because ultimately with a lot of these institutional owners who are charities, they end up feeling like they're implored to take the maximum price. And that often goes against the ability to deliver things like affordable housing or 
other infrastructure, energy generation techniques, cycle infrastructure, active travel, trams. And so we can only push our models so far before they break. And, and when we monitor the people that win these bids, that outbid us, they struggle to go on, on what they've offered. And so they start playing games once they're in there to batter down the price with lawyers or to just take a long time until the, um, the financial position is on their side. And that continues to go all through the, um, the development cycle to the point where they're saying things like uh, they're marketing on a very small scale, the doctor's surgery on site, and maybe put up a few posters trying to attract someone into that. And then when it comes to the point where they go, actually, no one's really interested in, in there's no local doctors interested in, in doctor's surgery. So we're unfortunately going to have to turn this into private housing as well. All the local community centers or like extra space, everything in this is, is a very dirty game when you mm. start trying to engage with alternative visions for how large-scale housing schemes should work. So that's what I think a big part of my learning and pushed me into development finance much more strongly across the last 10 years than, than maybe traditional architecture. This is super interesting. I do want to get into some of the other topics we have, but I'd love to I'd love to dig in a little bit, just a little bit further, right? Because this is uh, fascinating. When you, maybe in the last 10, 12 years, as some of these opportunities have come across your way, maybe in Oxford, maybe in other places, you've been a part of these, as you kind of said, unsuccessful land bids, but then the folks who come in and are bidding against you, you folks are mostly bidding on developing land that's owned by institutions. Did I get that part right? That's owned by, say, a nonprofit or a foundation or endowment or something? Traditionally, our bigger yeah, our bids have been with institutional landowners, mostly Oxford colleges. Gotcha. And so for those folks, you're coming in and saying, hey, housing shortage, rising prices, opportunity to present an alternative urban vision that's both you know, human-centric, maybe not car-centric, maybe it has other regenerative sort of principles that run along with it. And ultimately, you lose these because people, what does it look like on the economic side? Because you mentioned economics, right? When you're bidding against other folks, what does it actually look like? What are these proposals? What, what shape do they take? Often the request is to be able to offer a deposit up front, somewhere usually about 5%. So on a large scale scheme that maybe you're doing a land bid for 20 million, it's a fairly substantial amount of money for a citizen-led mechanism to pull together, a collaborative mechanism. So that would be the first part. How do you demonstrate that you've got that? And in the past, we've relied on high net worth individuals to step up with trusts or other philanthropic basis who can show their bank account and say that we cover the, the basis of this. At the same time as running share offers across the city. And so getting pledges up front to say, although this high net worth individual very much believes in this project and is willing to, to bid the early stage deposit on this, on this, we can also demonstrate pledges from people and institutions across the city that if we proceed with this, we will we'll backfill them with, with those offers. The second bit of this is that there's always a very hurried timeline to completion, usually timeline to a planning concern. And my experience of that is that's never complied with after the, the, the fact. And so everybody's saying, of course, we'll get there in six months. And then <laughs> never does. And then you, the big third part, I would say, is, is local agents pushing up the prices. And so people saying to you, well, you know, it, we understand that this piece of land is worth 15 million, but we're taking offers in excess of 22. And we sit there as uh, having understood the development appraisal in front of us, knowing, well, 15 million allows you to deliver the affordable housing and all the infrastructure that's expected in local policy. 
22 starts to make this look a little shaky. And so we're <laughs> unable to get up to 22, whereas others right. cross finance and do interesting things, or they just put their feet in and, and actually come around to offering 15 later. Yeah, I see. Okay, that makes sense. So really, it's essentially everyone is bidding for a scarce resource and the folks that you're up against are using any means necessary debt, behind the sky type stuff to win the bid. But then there's no accountability mechanism afterward for holding them accountable to how they made the bid. And they know that everything they did is no, there has no chance, really. And so they modify the proposal as they go. And the institution that, that owns the land, maybe Oxford College, one of the colleges it themselves go, well, they're the ones who want it. So we got to work with them. That's essentially a pretty good way to put it. I would say so. Yeah. But not just other colleges, churches, health trusts, other charities, and then private landowners. Actually, private landowners are much easier to work with in terms of the decision-making function. Got it. And I think I'm beginning to see now the parallel or at least a, a connection to where capital formation in Web3 mechanisms could where that parallel is and where, what the sort of potential is there for sure. Because if you have to go to high net worth individuals, of course, that's totally fine, right? There, there are scalable ways to do that. There are family offices. There are all kinds of things where you can kind of just say, "Where, who are the richest people who'd be interested in this, right? But then you can expand that circle of ownership by any number of fundraising primitives that have become popular in Web3. So that makes sense. Great. So maybe we can get into community land trust then, right? Because maybe this backs into that and Web3 as well. So I want to start from the top here. This is something that I've only learned about recently. So maybe you could tell us, what is a community land trust? Well, it's very simple, I would say. It's an expansive, broad definition for any kind of nonprofit land-based organization that's looking to take land off the speculative market and hold it within a trust forever, for a long, long time, for the for a benefit of a particular community. And that community can be a distributed one against a community of purpose or a geographical one. And usually it's a geography. It's a neighborhood, a city, a county, state, a country. Like, these things can bridge out and are nested within each other. We call them umbrella land trusts when we hit the top level and they represent a network and, and some smaller land trusts sit underneath them for efficiency, I guess. But I bring a lot into that definition and they're called different things all over the world. Uh, they've got a very long history. You can, you can talk about these as thousands of years old in terms of the way in which we organize and hold land together. But I go back for my purpose in England, about 250 years to the Chartists and the Owenites, Robert Owen, and started uh, to build towards garden villages and, and the garden village, garden city movement of the turn of the 20th century, leading to the Bhudan and Gramdan movements in India of village gift and large-scale landowners gifting to villages going to the black civil rights movement of the USA and, civil, and the community land trust mechanisms that were championed by uh, New Communities Inc. and for agricultural projects, um, but then finding its place within Bernie Sanders and, and Vermont of starting to create large-scale financing mechanisms for this backed by political systems in the 80s um, to our first one in England. The oldest one we've got, which is just around the corner, 30 minutes away, is Stonesfield Community Trust and which across its time, across its decades, has gone from a very small village of two and a half thousand homes to making about 80 to 100,000 pounds revenue a year on its assets for a tiny village. And so we often say like, if the 360 villages in Oxfordshire, this place where I am, 
could do the same approach. We have incredible commonwealth here focused on things that are happening at that local level, the public goods. And so Stonesfield has a lot of flexibility as a very mm-hmm. tiny village with quite a good revenue stream. They're funding local local sports projects, local education things, and they're acquiring assets, buying the post office, supporting the pub. These things are very replicable over time. Well, I think so. Let me. This is fascinating. I love this. So you mentioned there are 360 villages in Oxford, and the one you mentioned was Stonesfeld. Is that right? Yeah, Stonesfield, the, the Stonesfield. oldest community land trust in, in England, 1980. And just to make sure I have this right, you mentioned this Stonesfield itself do 80 to 100,000 pounds in revenue per year. Was that a different community land trust you were talking about? No, that's Stonesfield, tiny little nice. village. And what is the source of that revenue for the CLT? Well, they've done subsequent, they've done housing projects. So they, they've got 15 homes that they developed, not many. They develop a few homes at a time and they, they go through waves. And so in the 80s, they had one, the pub owner, the local pub, donated the car park to build houses called Friends Close. They were a big, they're a Quaker. Uh, and so that's where the Friends bit comes in. Nice. And then in the 90s, they did another project. In the 2000s, they did another project. And through building this asset base, yeah, they took, they built a local co-working center. They took over the, the, the school playing field, so playground. Post office was the thing that got turned into this like co-working space to save the post office. So, so and then they've got nice. local people putting their ha- homes in their wills into the trust, and so they maintain a number of private properties that they rent out to local people. Just um, accumulate. All you need is time. So then, you know, with this revenue stream, how is it governed? Is there a board? of the CLT that decides what to fund? Can citizens make proposals for how to use the money? How does all that work? It's quite a traditional uh, nonprofit board in this case. It's a membership organization. And so they've got to ask their members and their community of benefit when they want to do something particularly. Their their, um, boundary is the edges of this tiny village. And when they made an investment in a piece of land in Oxford on behalf of another trust, the Oxfordshire Community Land Trust, for their project Dean Court, they had to go out and ask their their village by putting articles in the local newspaper and really like demonstrating that this investment would have benefit to their community, while at the same time being able to buy some land for another trust who were going to build more cooperative homes. It's an interesting position they're in, but they're a traditional board, very a charity. They don't have distributed governance like what I'm sure we're about to go and talk about. Yeah, exactly. We kind of backed into it now, right? So I wanted to give people a firm base for, you know, CLTs exist. This is how they're, here's an example of one. This is its revenue stream. This is how it gets it. And this is potentially how it's governed currently. And all of that to say that none of this is really critique. It's just context, right? I think that it, by all accounts, it sounds like this is going quite well, right? We don't necessarily have to come in and parachute in a blockchain to do this, but we do want to now kind of shift focus and chat with you a bit about OASA and some of the other things you've been working on, you know, distributed cooperatives, regenerative finance styles, and the potential for them to scale both funding and governance for CLTs. So maybe we could uh, jump into that next. Can you tell us a bit about what OASA is? Yes. Well, I would say I'm new to the space. So afford me that in some of my descriptions, although I've been setting up community land trusts as of like across the last 10 years, I've set about 15 community land trusts here in England. So my experience is English. Uh, it's about the way in which the definition here works. But in the last couple of years, as I was starting to build 
a local fund for this place, the oxygen fund with the local authorities. I was really struggling to understand how we speed up some of these processes, how we bring more people into the funding equation and make this more participatory. So like build in the finance and governance. I had no experience of blockchain to that point. This was 2020. And I did a course on distributed cooperative organizations, discos. I'm a giant fan of discos and their their manifesto. Um, before you go any further too, that's um I that's Irene and the folks, I think there's a few people, right? Um I think we we intersect with them a bit. They're gonna be on the pod as well. So yeah, huge fan. I thank you for breaking down the acronym as well. Discos, distributed cooperative. What is it? Maybe you can organizations. There you go. As opposed to decentralized autonomous organizations, right? So before we get any further, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your experience with disco and what a disco is. So I heard of discos first. I hadn't heard <laughs> the word DAO before I heard <laughs> disco. So that's a, a starting point. Uh, they take appropriateness seriously. And so when they're engaging with blockchain, they are talking about applying some of the technologies after they've engaged with, with the social layer. And that for me is then they're, they're bringing in what's useful rather than starting with the tech. They employ a number of feminist economics as their approaches. Some of the projects they're doing have very high social purpose built into the DNA of them. And they their manifesto is well worth reading. It's beautifully designed. A PDF that you can download off their website, disco.coop as the domain. And they're building a number of different elements. The elements part of the of their project is, I would say, the, the most useful to me. You can you can download that part um, of their of the, on their website as well, which gives you some tools to apply to, to some of this stuff. So I don't know if I'm going to be the best to. I'll leave them to explain it. In oh, yeah. No problem. I just just we just wanted to make sure that we capture all of the acronyms as they come and make sure we point to them in the show notes. So thank you for that. <laughs> Absolutely. And then I went on to do a, a course called Tools for the Regenerative Renaissance, led by Phoebe Tuchel and Stephen Reed. Incredible course, very broad base, includes new forms of finance and uh, entire sessions on soil and, and was backed by the Seeds community on the Telos blockchain. And so they, that was a better than free course. My initial interaction with my first blockchain-based project. And they anyone that finished that course got gifted Seeds as a result. And... It brought more people into the Seeds ecosystem that I know have been very useful to Seeds at the same time as offering way more than the course fee in in Seeds. I've left my Seeds in there and I've gone on to do lots of different things with that ecosystem. Yeah, really great group of people doing very interesting things. And at that point, I resolved to do something with soil. So I've been doing things with land in abstract and particularly housing for, for all the previous time that we've talked about. At that point, they illustrated very clearly how soil and oceans were the, the, the thing to be focusing on across this next decade in terms of high gain of, of personal time put into something. So at that point, I was looking for, for soil-based projects, having no real experience in it, but understanding that I had lots of skills to offer and went to rebuild, which was an event in Portugal. Regenerative builders, big Web3 focus, but they were looking at creating regenerative eco-villages. 100 people, five days last year, 2021, in September, and met an incredible group of people. Um, Very, very competent, very warm and affectionate, but very focused on changing things and building these villages all over the world. And just decided that's what I wanted to be um, connected to. It was based in traditional Dream Factory, which is the first project of OASA. So I was 
tapping them on their shoulder for a couple of months saying, I really want to be involved in this project. I want to make it one of my priorities. And so in January this year, I went onto their legal group and have been getting closer and closer to the core, or actually quite quickly, and spent a fair bit of time there this year. So I'll t- tell you a bit about Awasa, uh, given that um, sort of lengthy tale to get in there, but please definitely how I've got into this space. Awasa is a regenerative eco-village developer, effectively, with a Swiss association. So they're based out of Switzerland for their uh, token legislation that backs these kind of organizations, so the Swiss Verein. And the aim of OASA, our organization, is to conserve, put into conservancy or regenerate 100,000 hectares of land across 12 projects. And the first project is Traditional Dream Factory in Alentasia in Portugal. It's a 30-hectare scheme where across our entire network and including this project, 95% of the land will be for, for regeneration. And in this case, building almost all the land planting a food forest, a very dense, complex uh, plantation and um, connected with a number of different functions on the the buildings, a restaurant, co-working space, housing. But the aim is to be pushing revenue into building the, the creation of this food forest. And so you mentioned regeneration a few times. We've done a couple episodes with folks from Collectivo. We've had Regen Networks, Gregory Landau on to talk about regeneration, people who've had, you know, anywhere from five to 20 years experience in regenerative agriculture. So from an ecological perspective, for folks who are like, what the hell is regeneration? Can you tell us a little bit about what that means? And you mentioned passing, right? Food forest, you know, uh, revenue productivity, but what does regeneration mean? Especially maybe, you know, if you take us back to Charlie, who is thinking about, I want to do something in soil and oceans. What does it look like, maybe for soil? Well, I would say, and knowing the way that Gregory talks about it from Regen, we also focus on forms of capital. And so it's not just planting and soil-based. It's also social, it's cultural. It engages with the happiness of people through to engaging with new financial systems. And these things act back on top of each other to create a system of what we would hope for is in a system of abundance across a, a number of different areas. So while we are very focused on regenerating the water systems, holding water in the land, planting a very diverse ecological system on most of the land, and then getting bigger and bigger, so rolling this into future projects so we can regenerate larger amounts of land, it's equally about the, the cultures, the lifestyles that we create in these places and supplementing existing villages, towns, cities. And so an example of the first project, Traditional Dream Factory, we sit on a a very small village, almost a thousand people. And the aim is to complement that place, to build into the cultures and practices that they've developed over a long, long time. The street festivals, the people now coming and gathering outside of cafes, the different foods that are there. The history of this chicken factory, which is now turning into a regenerative project, this community land trust, that history being built in, the people that used to work in this factory come up and engage on the land. We go down and spend time in the village. We don't want to be an alien plonking down and being on the edge and inviting lots of outsiders into this place. We want to make sure we're regenerating this small village, Abella, and be a, a strong net positive. So regeneration also involves these existing systems into this wider picture. Got it. And so like one way that I... It's easy to explain in terms of natural capital, I think, 
because when people ask me like what does regeneration mean it really just it's the simplest example i like to say is that a piece of land that's being made productive for an extractive industry and like i say extractive not as a you know diminutive or pejorative term here it's really just that's what it does right so like if you have a a piece of a forestry that's being you know forest for a forest is being managed by a forestry bureau or what have you that land is valued by how much timber it produces right and how much timber can be extracted for productive use regenerative use would be also trying to price the contribution of that land with biodiversity how much life does it sustain what does that life do in perpetuating itself either with new trees shrubs and native biodiversity that then leads to topsoil restoration that might lead to carbon dioxide trapped oxygen produced these are all things that are right now somewhat uh entangled right when you when you look at the existing uh, notion of what ecosystem services look like and what payments for ecosystem services are so that I think is a really clear example. I try to show people, and then you know, from the sound, from the sound of what you're doing, you mentioned, you know, Gregory. He has the eight forms of capital book that he he didn't originate that he wrote. Regenerative enterprises based on the eight forms of capital, right? And so, maybe a good way to tie it together then for what Oasa is doing is you're. In addition to natural capital, you're also looking at what are the sort of things downstream of each of these other forms of capital that you can then maybe launch as an initiative within the purview of this community land trust. Is that about right? Yeah, I think we're meeting a complex system with another complex system. So we're trying to take approaches where things can emerge that we may never have initially conceived of. And that's built into the way in which we create our procedures create our policies, create the way in which we talk to each other, looking to support businesses that emerge out, new ideas for what could be built on the land, the next projects. And that's where the DAO comes into this very strongly. We are, as OASA, we have a, a guardianship, so a, a guardian, a, a council of guardians who are looking to implement a regenerative land use agreement. So they're the ones staking the line. They're saying, these are the red lines. These are the expectations. If one of the projects that sits underneath it contravenes that, then the, the council will take action. We'll go in an early stage with some processes to try and remediate, but then a number of cascading steps to making sure that the that the planet the, is held as a participant to this table and a number of other elements through, through as you're saying, like capital bases. At the, the project level, they have delegates. So the projects will be voting as delegates, but inside each one is a down. So they traditional dream factory has been designed from our perspective using sociocracy i've been a sociocracy coach for for much of the time i've been working on this and so I, that's what i teach to to these land trusts in england what we've brought is that to traditional dream factory so we operate as circles these circles have autonomy they have budgets independently we publish our cycles so our cycles based on the equinoxes we've just put through our snapshot a the next cycle of projects and budgets both fiat and tokens in the project we are um this allows things that like i was saying we may not have considered to come up through making sure that there's the minimum necessary constraints for each of these circles and the roles that sit within them and the roles being the important bit actually making sure that we focus on roles before we focus on circles working groups give people mm-hmm. autonomy yeah that they then go out and do very interesting projects and then we collect them all together through our coordination circle 
So this is not the first time that sociocracy has come up on the pod, but it's always good to have a quick refresher before the next thing I really want to dig into you with is we, we had a great chance to look at how, say, a real world Stones, you know, Stonesfield Community Land Trust works today and its revenue streams and its governance. I'd like to dig into OASAs and, well, you know, traditional dream factories. But before we do that, real quickly, can you give the audience just a quick review on what sociocracy 3.0 looks like and what is it? Sure. Yeah. Well, sociocracy 3.0 is what I did training in, but we are we don't hold to that. Uh, we're looking at sociocracy in its broadest sense. But sociocracy three creates a number of patterns that are very useful that we brought into transition uh, into traditional dream factory. What it operates on is this idea of bringing autonomy to the smallest level to build collaboration through who's working on a project, so groupings of collaborators. And the important bit is them understanding the common sense issue of, of where they're starting from, what's the observed issue that you've got before jumping to projects and proposals and all this other stuff. And so what you see within projects all over the world is people running on things where maybe there's not a very well understood problem already, that they haven't observed what's going on. They could do months of work before realizing that actually that was just an issue for them or for and wasn't a commonly agreed on situation. And so we spend a lot of time building out the driver to how things work and tuning that and getting it well understood. And, and once there's fluency, you can work quite fast at that level, moving through to proposals, but ensuring that a number of principles sit there. So within S3, my favorite principle is this one of equivalence is operating at the layer of people that it's closest to. So if something affects someone, they have to be involved in the decision-making processes. There's, there's huge amounts more that come into sociocracy and lots of different yeah, Don't worry. I, I don't need you. To, we definitely don't. We could do a whole episode on sociocracy. So no problem. I just wanted to make sure that, you know, we mentioned a little bit about it and how it works and we can link to it in the show notes. So totally fine. But now I think, you know, shifting gears again, back to what you were talking about, which is really fascinating. You're, this is, it's fascinating to me because it's not something that is a playbook that if you take the Stonesfield Trust, Stonesfield Trust that like we were talking about, that's just really, to me, it's very straightforward. The state has a perspective on what this thing is. It'll almost come to you and say, great, how many board seats are there? Who are the directors? What is the structure? This is, these are the papers you fill out, bada bing, bada boom, right? Like it's super straightforward, but you're innovating on a lot of fronts and you're innovating on a way that you know, you mentioned uh, this in sort of the website as I was speaking to it, you're transitioning ownership to stewardship. And to me, that means in one particular way that who is, how do you expand that circle of participants, right? As you said, if you're affected by this, then you need to have a say, right? And that, you know, a say has a legal, <laughs> has a legal definition in some places, and it has a political economic definition, right? And then it has a social one as well, right? So I'd love to dig in a bit more on that and say to you, right, like, we have this toy model of how trusts work with their boards and governance, and it's fine, and it's humming a couple hundred year experiment, great. But with what you're doing, what is really like the bleeding edge of that? How are you including people in the governance? Maybe we start there. So my initial thought on this is around that nested layer that I was talking about before, that these interests intersect with each other, and that the different layers, as long as people can interact with each layer to the highest to the lowest, that there's no hierarchy essentially there. These are levels. This hierarchy is in levels. And so where we're talking about this planetary level, the, the guardianship, that sits there as being interacting with individual people within projects, scaling up from there. 
So the involvement I'm talking about is within this idea of, of boundaries, very permeable boundaries. But when we're talking about the organizing groups within OASA and then within traditional Dream Factory, we're talking about circles that are so group working groups that are interacting heavily. Uh, so they're doing shared projects and they're bringing in people that that have a something to add that are either affected or have a skill set they can bring. And this idea of artful participation, if you're not useful in that conversation or, or that project, extract yourself as a culture. Like You don't need to be there. You don't need to say something. Yeah. If you're not someone that has anything to add extract yourself and that's a, a real gift that you can offer to the people around you because you're taking a room from 10 people to three and the three people can get on with what they're doing 100 it's a principle i tried i have tried instilled in any DAO i'm in really which is i phrase it as like you please feel comfortable to vote with your feet if you're here and you don't feel like you need to be just go right like no one's going to be offended right so absolutely agree and then we operate on consent and so we're not a consensus-based organization. We don't need to get everybody to agree. We're looking to make fast and effective decisions where something's safe enough to try. And we can iterate. We can encourage prototyping. We can learn from failures, but we just need to move forwards. And so that sits as a threaded element through everything we do as well. We're encouraging things to happen. So we give consent. We offer objections as a gift. And like people have the opportunity to change and change something because uh, they can see an, an unintended consequence that could come out of doing it or a value that could be added. But these are seen and received as ob objections as, as something positive. And often we see attention as being something quite negative. But what we're looking to do is operate on navigating through these tensions where something appears to somebody about the existing situation or something, that, a direction that we could go. We're looking to unearth these tensions and engage with them in a very positive way. And that would be something that I would take away from being involved in Traditional Dream Factory in a, in a closer way in the last 10 months is it's a very warm, affectionate group of people who love working together. It's very playful. It's a joy to go on the calls. We had a, a full community call on Monday and people were thrilled to be with each other across that wider outer layer. Um, as much as they are when we're doing the small project stuff, either the land group or or the community group, communications. There's a lot of delight that runs through this organization through inhabiting this agency, this autonomy of people to get on with what's what's valuable, what's, what's useful, and being able to understand the rules of the game very effectively. Absolutely. I think you touched on some important things here. We're often... Um... You know, folks I introduced to this space, folks who are not even, not even Web3, right? Just um, alternative social structures, organizational structures, self-managing organizations. Initially, it looks like chaotic to folks, but um, really, I, I actually, Martin might disagree at this too. I'm interested to hear what he says, but essentially, you look around some of the, the I would say, ecosystems who are on the bleeding edge of governance innovation, and I think one of their advantages is when they design things in such a way that they're the worst possible problems can be foregrounded as soon as possible so that you can address them, right? Because I, I am very, very bearish on on-chain governance and trustless on-chain governance and you know trustless permissionless stuff like this, where essentially all you're using is a proposal to really simple, hyper simplify the complexity of social relations into a thing that can just be a yes or no or abstain vote, right? And and then as a result of that, you know, if you look at stuff like Cosmos Network, 
and its governance proposals. It's just to someone who's not a part of the ecosystem, it looks like chaos. Right? Like people, are, there's fighting and comments and this, that, and the other. But at the end of the day, if you understand relations at play, you actually see like actually there's love in this because they care, right? And they've hit, they've surfaced something that's going to be a key issue that we must discuss and find a way through or agree to disagree or what have you, right? So then coming back around to your project, is that, uh, you know, for someone who walks in off the street, maybe in this town in Portugal and is like, excuse me, what the hell is this? <laughs> right? Like, what have been those early experiences for people? What did you kind of have to navigate in the early days of it, right? Because you mentioned things like, how do we make decisions? What are consensus? But were there any mistakes or things that you you know learned along the way where you're like, oh, redo that? For sure. Yes, lots. I'll try and pick through some of them. I would say, so we're not very open. So there's two parts to this. We want to make sure that the people who are coming and working on this project and living on this project, because you can, there's people living there right now, down in Portugal, that they want to live with each other, that there is shared ethos there. Well, without being exclusive, with making sure that they're welcoming, but making sure that also it's a safe and comfortable place for people to live who are working on this stuff so we're very careful about membership you can't just you can't buy the token at all and i'll get onto the token raise in a bit but in order to gain membership you have to come and spend time there and after three days there's a vibe check after two weeks there's the opportunity for membership like you've got to be at this project on the ground if you want to engage with it and when we talk about governance i often come back to attention being fragile we don't want to be pulling on people's attention all the time. It's, it takes a lot of energy to guide people through to co really concentrating on an issue that we need whole, whole DAO attention to. And so where we see in the space, especially within the more financial protocols and projects, uh, lots of issues coming through on chain all the time and, and attention is thin and, and the quorum for decisions is very low. We want to make sure we're asking very important questions to our wide community and then leaving the vast majority of decisions down at that bottom level where you don't really see things happening we're monitoring we're we're recording decisions as they're being made but they're being made by the people who it affects the most who are involved in these circles or roles which will never get on chain and we just need to give people those permission to get on with what they're doing as people walk into this project we try and make this as enjoyable and experience as possible. So we often talk about traditional dream factory as our first project and what we think will be the first regenerative eco village funded through web three approaches in Europe. We'd like to meet others. We know others that are on it, but in the next few months, we'll hopefully gain our authorization from the Swiss authorities, FINMA, to do our token raise. And so we should be by December going into our public sale. We're doing private sale at the moment because we're allowed to do that, but we're not allowed to do a public sale until we've got authorization from the Swiss authorities. So that will be happening. Um, we would like to meet others doing this, and we're connected very well with the Regenerative Civics Alliance, Region Civics Alliance, who I recommend you get on your um, podcast as well. Um, definitely, we'll follow up after afterward for sure. I think like bringing up the token race is a really interesting part of it as well. So maybe that's the next thing we touch on before we uh, begin to wrap this up. So there are a few projects, I think, that are out there who are experimenting with, you know, real life, you know, meat space, living and uh, co-living and what have you. And the 
you know, so for tokenizing or for offering a token for this, right? It's you know, there's cabin down, there's a number of folks, but I'd love to learn first. You know, you mentioned the Swiss authority process. You can do a private sale, but you need regulatory approval for public. Can you tell us a little bit about that process? Where do you stand in it and, and how does it work? First of all, I'll say it's it's the most expensive organization land trust that I've ever set up. <laughs> you got the Swiss involved. <laughs> yeah. Um, so by an org- maybe five times the, the cost, very, very expensive. I'm used to setting up maybe 5,000 pound organizations here. That's a, that gets you some serious bells and whistles in the UK for doing a public share offers up to a hundred thousand pounds per investor. So talking about quite large amounts of money for dealing with legal professionals and getting this Swiss Verein, Swiss Association set up. It's a member body. And so we've spent many months developing the Articles of Association, the SAFT agreements for the private uh, private sale that allows us to have essentially a contract, a private contract with individuals that want to invest in the early stages of the project. And we've built out the purpose of this organization in legal terms in what is quite a new space still. We've, I'm very used to working from model articles and adjusting a few clauses because it's the cheapest way of doing things. In this case, we've almost started from a blank sheet and we, make, we want to make sure that we don't do that ever again. So we're very willing to share these processes and talk to anyone that has, uh, is keen to embark on it. And that's our membership of the Regen Civics Alliance facilitates that through the 12 projects they're working on. We have made, an, we're part of, this is a complex issue to talk about is the legal incorporation, but we're registered within a, a Swiss canton, a state county within 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 Switzerland. Mm-hmm. We have a number of VAT uh, responsibilities that are difficult to navigate, but essentially we can raise our token as a utility token. That's an important part of this, not a security. And the reason for that is because our token issues usage rights. It's a timeshare token. And so, so making that case has been a, lot, a big part of this year. And that's what gaining this, this approval uh, for later in the year is all about, is making sure that we're seen as a utility token as we raise finance into this project. So we need to raise 4 million euros um, across the end of this year, which we, we hopefully will do. And if we don't, there'll be some learning as well. But we're feeling very strong at this point in terms of the private sales we've made. And maybe I just talk a little bit about what the token does with some of this time. Please. Yeah. So so the TDF token, traditional dream factory token, it's a it's a utility token that gains your ability to stay in our project through our partner closer. So we've got this ecosystem of this, what we call a constellation of different organizations. So closer is our technology platform. And it's a booking system for these kinds of projects, but as well as events. And so what you'll do is you'll be an owner of the TDF token and that grants you use rights for a day on the project, or in the case of some of the bigger houses, uh, two, three, four, five, five tokens per day. And so our total supply is based on how much capacity we've got in our scheme, how many rooms we've got per night, for nights, times by the year, 365 days. So that's what I mean by this timeshare is that we've got this perennial token that gives you use rights. So if you own a month worth of tokens, you've got a month this year, it rolls over to next year, you've got a month next year, and you may sell in year three or year 10 or 20 is the expectation for us is having really long-term holders on these projects. And as you come and stay in the project, as you stake your token within our 
uh, within the project, you earn what we call as presence. We've got this proof of presence presence protocol within that sits in the center. And so you generate this, and this is what you use for go the governance mechanisms. So what we're really keen on is that people who have power within the organization are people that are turning up on the ground and are staying there. And as you stay away for a year, your presence erodes. And so this will be a big experiment for us. I'm sure we have already outlined all the ways that this could be that this could be an issue with the version one, but we're trying to make it really simple. And so this idea that we're a land-based project, we want people to be on the land. We want people to be building value there in Abella, spending money in the local cafe, planting trees on the land, setting up a business in, in one of the spaces. Uh, that's an important part of this. So there's these two parts, the, the utility token, which gains you use rights and presence, which is emitted in order to do your governance elements. And that's as simple as the token system goes. It's, it's not a very complicated tokenization process. As I said at the, the start, as I was in, introducing OASA, we're really keen for the vast majority of revenue that's developed on the site through the restaurant, through the events. We do 150 person events. That's how I got into it through Rebuild was turning up to a hundred person event. The co-working spaces, the um, people buying ownership in our project through the token and pushing as much of that into building the food forest, building the regenerative stuff, building the water systems on site. Uh, lots of stuff going on at the moment on the ground on grey water and building a natural pool. The lifestyle aspect will be really great. It's to be there. But most of it, the purpose of this project is pushing it into the land. And so although the token will increase in value over time, we're fixing that, but to a very small degree. So you could sell in a few years' time and it will be worth more than it will if we manage to continue to generate the attention into this project but we're pushing the vast majority of revenues into the land and so we're seeing the value of this project being much higher than what we are um, talking about in the token value here and that's where we start to get into monitoring of the planting system on, on site so we've got an active partnership with open forest protocol to be measuring how we've done so we've planted a few thousand trees already on site and we've been going through that process of, of documenting in order to understand how we're growing on site and integrating with their market to, to return carbon credits on this project across the wide array of OASA's projects. So we'll be growing on top of this and some of the returns goes into the next project. A big part is an assumption that natural capital assets will have a big part to play across the next decade and make up a part of our business plan going forwards. So those those partnerships on carbon is important to us as well. I just want to clarify one thing, Charlie, on the token. So how do I get a token? How are my token rights kind of in the utility token allocated in the first year? Can you just explain that again? So you, you acquire the token and you have the ability at that point as a token holder to stake your uh, token. Right, but, but but when you acquire the token to start, like, how does that happen? We're still designing this at the moment. So this is... A okay. Okay. So this is why I'm asking, because I think one... So, so this is fascinating, right? So the token that's acquired in the beginning, right? Depending on how you acquire it, if you don't have deflation in the price over time, the governance rights are going to go to people that are present at the same time that the value of the underlying token increases, right? And so... You could have this situation in year three or year four where 
you have an incentive to own the token, but actually the people that have the ownership stake increasing in value do not actually have the governance rights because they're not they're not in person. And so there's probably something, so it's probably kind of a second order mechanism that needs to be added to the token. And you guys are probably thinking about this, but I was trying to work it out in my head as you were thinking or talking. Yeah. Without doubt, the token circle is developing this. They talk about it very a lot. And Sam, uh, my colleague who sits across Closer and OASA is an expert in, in these things and is designing that token that in a way in which to engage with some of these mechanics. I would say that the inflation is very low. It's a nonprofit project. The increases are small and will be based on being able to generate value in this project. But it's also broad. The income streams are very broad across this. So we will have people that are invested but aren't on site, that aren't involved in our governance. And pulling those two pieces are apart is important, um, that governance and the financial are, are separated. But there's lots to do. Yeah, I'm sure I'm going to give an inadequate answer to this coming from this traditional world of, of land trusts and the projects when um, there's other people in our team that are... That are yeah, no, it's, it's just a, it's kind of a fascinating model. You could do something around land value tax that is kind of assigned to people who don't show up in person. I, yes. I don't know. It's, it's, really, it's a really interesting kind of model uh, just to think through. How do you incentivize people to want to... How do you incentivize fueling money into these places while at the same time disincenting people from not showing up and being attentive while at the same time the land value is going to increase theoretically to the extent that the projects are successful? Maybe a, a longer conversation six months from now. Absolutely. And also bringing in Sam at that point, who uh, I would say is, is definitely the person on this. A big part of this is also not only the spreading of some of these elements across our projects on broad, so the 12 projects, 100,000 hectares, but we also sit within the Regen Civics Alliance, which is other projects around the world, holding its, each, each other's tokens. And so there's a strength to be held within this network of regenerative eco-villages that we think will will create and Re Regen Civics are holding their own token, an index of regenerative eco-villages across the world. There's a possibilities then for um, holding each other's liquidity, so maintaining liquidity pools and re regenerative markets for these kind of eco-villages, such that we're, um, we hold strength in the same way as like, countries holding um, kind of gilts and bonds within each other's um, ecosystems. So like, there's something here about creating a a very resilient network of these projects such that no one's on their own um, in trying to navigate a lot of these terms. And the Regen Civics Incubator, which has been running for the last six months and will be kicking off again soon, is teaching a lot of these techniques from first principles and building a, an alliance of different um, tooling systems, supporters, such that we can do entire finance raises at that larger scale and then distribute funding down into the, the individual villages. So there's a number of layers to this that gets into complexities quite quickly, but we really focus on this traditional dream factory, first projects, 30 hectares, as an, uh, an experiment for some of the mechanisms that we're building at the um, OASA and then this Regen Civics ecosystem level. Martin, if you have something else, jump in. If not, I'm happy to jump. No, no, my brain is going on kind of the token. And so I'm... Yeah. I'm, um, you know, I'm fascinated. I'm interested to see. I'm interested to see how this kind of evolves over, because uh, it it really could have implications for cities as well. It's a, it's a longer conversation.
For sure. And I think, you know, Charlie, we should definitely have you back on for that or your colleague. I mean, you mentioned Sam as well as you evolve this, because I think, you know, like, geez, Georgism and land value taxes just was such a fantastically popular thing, like a hundred or so, or even more years ago. Right. And that's it, just something that we, I would love to see someone use that primitive in web three or literally anywhere is I think it just addresses so many things at once. And we'll, we'll put stuff in the show notes for this as well, because I mean, we, we're kind of coming at the tail end of this. We're not going to spend another hour on Georgism, but uh, just something in the notes that we'll point people to. I think, you know, we covered a lot on the token. I'm very curious to see how this thing with Open Forest Protocol shapes out as well, because it offers the opportunity for you to just build a natural capital asset backing for the token, right? And then, you know, that again, we can get into some interesting areas because if there's if you hold the token and you have rights to revenue, you know, is this going to be a utility token or not? It opens up some interesting questions. But at the same time, I think it needs to be done because you're trying, if we go back all the way to the example when you and I are riffing on what refi is, you need to be able to make revenue streams for regeneration that are as competitive or more competitive than just extraction, right? And so this would be a really interesting way to see, can the folks in Portugal in this town, build a food forest, plant trees, trap carbon, generate credits with validated methodologies that then can bring revenue to the cooperative, the structure that you folks set up. So fascinating stuff, man. I think well, we can kind of bring it down to our close here. You're involved in a lot of projects across this ecosystem, right? One thing I wanted to ask you in particular, since you've had such broad exposure is what are you most excited about in the coming months, maybe in the next six to 12 months, right? During this bear market, which is just a great time to build. And, you know, like I said, it looks like you folks are building some amazing stuff. So what really excites you about what, and what's to come? Well, as I mentioned in that last piece about OASA, the, we're intending for the token sale to be launched in the coming months. So we'll be doing a lot of activity there. We welcome people that are interested in supporting the project, but also getting involved with their time. Um, there's a huge array of projects. We're very organized, big projects and task lists. We know what we want to do across the next year. And so if people are, find this persuasive, come and spend some time with us would be a, a first step and get more involved. We have a number of ways in which to pull you in. And we've got people whose entire role within the organization is to make your entry into this a really delightful and enjoyable process. The second thing is I'm organizing a six-week course on community land trusts and Web3 that we're hoping to launch across the early stages of, of next year. We've already been participant in, in the last Gitcoin grant round and we'll be participant in the next one. But what that's looking to do is to take 50 existing community land trusts, so individuals from community land trusts from all over the world and get a really strong representation. We have a map of all of them through the Center for Community Land Trust Innovation based in Vermont that I mentioned earlier. They've been disseminating this information since the 70s. We've got 50 years of experience of building land trusts. And through our publisher, Terra Nostra Press, we published the handbook on this. And I was a contributor to the last handbook for the English part of this. But we've got all over the world, we've got different ways of approaching this. And we're keen to make these two sides meet. So 50 community land trusts, 50 Web3 regens involved in projects wanting to see real world stuff happen. and engage in a six-week course where the purpose is to build interaction and, and cooperation between these two sides to understand each other and because 
they often operate in sort of parallel tracks and especially on the CLT world, there's not a lot of fluency in this area. So we're looking to teach both sides in a parallel track, one side about Web3, one side about CLTs, and each week they meet in order to have discussions about what projects they might want to do. So that's the first phase, and we'd be looking to do the first cohort in the spring. And then moving towards a mentoring program, which now that I've been part of things that are better than free, we're really keen to make sure that participants in these processes are compensated for their time so that we make sure that it's accessible to a really interesting and wide array of people that will make this useful. So a six-month mentoring program to create real-world projects as we do the next cohort and as we build ability. So we know that we've got 50 years worth of stuff to tell on CLTs, and we've got a real array of different ways of solving these land-based problems. And we're keen to make sure that the two sides meet and build stuff together. So that would be the main thing that I'm excited about now is this six-week course. And if you go to our website, which would be great if you can put in the show notes as well, you can express interest in being part of this course now. We'll be quite selective on who gets into the first one because we want to make sure we've got that geographical distribution and a range of different projects and personalities and backgrounds in that first course. But that would be the place to go to uh, to say that you want to either help out or be part of the course. Very cool. And make sure, Charlie, that when you put that course together, you DM me the link, man. May, I don't know if Spain will be overrepresented, but I'm very interested in just learning for sure and, and patronizing the course for sure. So thanks a lot. That was a... We will definitely recount all of those in the show notes for folks who are interested. And lastly, where can people find you online? So on Twitter, at Fisher Charlie, Fisher underscore Charlie would be a, a good place to go. I'm very happy to have conversations with people who want to engage in the wide array of things that I've talked about in this conversation. And uh, look us up in the Gitcoin grant round coming in December in order to fund some of these things. A lot of these projects that I've mentioned will have profiles and we'll be looking to push more land-based projects mutually supporting each other across that grant round. So come and find us in December and uh, give us your $1 donations. We'll, we'll use them very well. Yeah, definitely. Remember too, folks, that one, $1 of just indicating your preference in the Gitcoin grant can just be a huge contribution. It can be 20, it can be a couple hundred, it can be a thousand. It really depends on the grant. So great. I think you know, we'll, we'll definitely point to your past grant rounds in the show notes. And thanks a lot for educating us on CLTs and what's possible. I'm very interested to see what you folks hook up with OASA. Thank you very much for the engaging conversation. It was a great podcast. Thank you, Charlie.